0: It's time to take the quiz. 5 questions, 5 minutes a day, 5 days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at the quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course listen to The Quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Martha
1: McCallum, I'm Bill Hemmer, I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. I'm Dave Anthony. We've made it to another election year, and the polls show former President Trump is still way ahead in Iowa, poised to win the first Republican contest in two weeks. I think there's a
2: scenario where Nikki Haley does better than expected in Iowa, which gives her momentum going into New Hampshire.
3: I'm Jessica Rosenthal. A housing market at a standstill did not help the economy over the past year, but the news out of the last Fed meeting is giving everyone in this sector hope that real estate will start moving again.
4: What we're expecting in 2024 is a, a pricing back in of housing demand and gains for certain
5: kinds of housing activity, including single-family home building. I'm Liz Peek. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. new year, an
1: election year, and it all begins in just 13. 15 days, the Iowa caucuses. Now, Iowa represents this country more than any place, and it also represents tradition. And former President Trump told a Hannity town hall there on Fox last month, the polls show he should win big.
2: If Trump loses, he will say it's stolen no matter what. Absolutely. He, he, will, he will try to delegitimize the results. Uh, he did that against Ted Cruz in 2016.
1: Now, Ron DeSantis is in a tight race for second in Iowa with Nikki Haley, who's been surging, especially in the polls in New Hampshire, which has a primary three weeks from today. But the Florida governor is banking on a big showing in Iowa.
2: Ron DeSantis seemed like that was a place where he would make a stand or make a statement early on, but he's come down there. Um, about as much as he's come down everywhere else.
1: Darren Shaw is a professor of government at the University of Texas, a member of the Fox News national decision team, and he's in the bipartisan Fox News polling group.
2: The other candidates have not kind of rallied any sort of support, particularly Nikki Haley in Iowa, the way they have to a lesser degree in New Hampshire and in South Carolina. So You know, barring something really unusual happening in the last couple of weeks, and of course, nothing unusual ever happens in American politics, um, you know, it it looks like Trump is in pretty good shape. Plus, he's, you know, it's interesting. In 2016, the kind of reputation of the Trump campaign was that they're not really good on the ground. They don't necessarily know the rules the way Mm. some of the other Republican candidates had. That is completely flipped in 2024. He seems to be the master, you know.
1: Yeah, they they say he has a good ground game there. And, of course, the polls have given him, like, you know, 30-point leads in in, in Iowa. Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, he has been going everywhere in Iowa, every county. He wants to go to some places twice. He wants to meet everybody. And that's what you're supposed to do in Iowa, right? But it hasn't hasn't given him any kind of a boost in polling. I think
2: think it's as simple as his message just isn't really resonating right it's it's not clear he's not trump and but he's not really a critic of trump or offering a distinct vision from trump the the kind of uh focus on uh anti-woke politics that that animated the early part of his campaign didn't really seem to catch anybody's imagination and so I, you know, I, I think he's a candidate with a pretty good resume, but it's it's unclear exactly what his message is and what his lane is.
1: You know, and conference. and it's interesting because he even got the endorsement of the governor Kim Reynolds, much to yeah. you know the detriment. Uh, well, to a lot of, of course, criticism from former President Trump. But she backed DeSantis, and he didn't get a bump out of that either.
2: No, and a lot of the things, as you said, endorsements, uh, building organization. Uh, you know, pressing the flesh, going out there and meet and doing the meet and greets. We we all think that matters in these early contests. But I tell you, if if the candidate can't connect with voters, if the message doesn't match the moment, it it doesn't seem to make much of a difference. And I think that's Rhonda Santos's fundamental problem right now.
1: Okay, now Iowa in the past has not had a really good track record of picking the republican nominee you can go back to huckabee you can go back to cruz and santorum i mean none of those ended up being president cruz yeah yeah. yeah, none of those guys right (laughs) especially in the republican side it doesn't seem to be the the case um is there a chance of a surprise result that DeSantis does a lot better than we think that 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 haley does a lot better than we think i mean has iowa shown that before
2: it has. Um, you can surprise. Uh, the. I think, you know, maybe on the Democratic side, we kind of think more of these than on the Republican side. I, I remember reading about the reaction of the Clintons when Barack Obama won the, the Iowa caucus. Right. Convinced that Obama was, you know, illegally bringing busloads of Illinois voters over and things like that. Uh, conspiracy theories seem to be bipartisan these days. Uh, but yeah. at, at any rate, there, there is a little bit of a history of surprise. The, the one I think of historically uh, was George H.W. Bush surprising Ronald Reagan way back in 80 when Reagan was the you know dominant frontrunner. But you're right. It doesn't have a very it doesn't necessarily mean much. I. I you know, looking for a surprise, what I would suggest is there's very little chance it seems to us even if something breaks as it might in the next few weeks, that the Trump won't win, gain the most delegates out, get the most voters to the polls. I'm looking at the number two race though, as you hinted at the, the, you know is it can Nikki Haley finish second? Um, I think there's a scenario where Nikki Haley does better than expected in Iowa, which gives her momentum going into New Hampshire.
1: Even if she doesn't do as well as you you say she might in Iowa, you look at the polling, she is in three different surveys in the last couple of weeks at or just under 30%. One of the polls has her 4 points back of former President Trump. The others have her around 14 or 15 points back. That that's a big change from the last several months. She has the backing of a governor there, Chris Sununu. He seems to have helped. Is there a chance? You know, Democrats can vote in the Republican primary. Is there a chance that she could win that?
2: The electorate in New Hampshire is much better for a candidate like Nikki Haley than the Iowa caucuses. The Iowa caucuses are it's a Midwestern state where she's not that well known. It's dominated by the stronghold of the Republican Party, which is essentially MAGA these days. They control the organization. They're used to participating. They, you know, participated in twenty sixteen. He's got that place. New Hampshire's a different animal. Independents can vote. Um, you know, decline to states as they, they're listed in the New Hampshire registrations. Um, Democrats can cross over if there's no interesting contest on the Democratic side, which there does not appear to be.
1: I mean, President uh, Biden's the, not even he, on the ballot there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So what what's the downside? Um, and New Hampshire voters are notoriously kind of flinty. They're more they're, they're kind of a, a, a more um, iconoclastic, but not populist breed of Republicans. And Haley's message and Haley's persona seem to me to be a pretty good fit there in a way that Trump has never been a great fit in New Hampshire. So there is a scenario. And that then, you know, the question is, would that then make her the flavor of the day? You know, maybe there's more negative news from Trump on the legal front and you're moving to South Carolina, which is an open primary as well, um, even though. There will be a Democratic contest, and Biden is on uh, contesting there. So so you, if you squint hard enough, you can see this. Okay. But, but it does take some squinting, admittedly.
1: Now, obviously, Nikki Haley is a former governor of South Carolina. She's well-known there. She could do well there, even if she didn't have a great performance in Iowa or in New Hampshire. But let's get back to uh, Governor DeSantis. If he finishes fourth in New Hampshire, let's say Trump wins, Haley comes in a close second, she does well. Christie gets third. If DeSantis finishes fourth, there's been already talk that his fundraising might be an issue. Can he move on?
2: You know, it's it, it's always a matter in, in this modern era of the willingness of the candidates to continue or not. You know, th- think back to 2020, Buttigieg and Klobuchar just packing their bags up after South Carolina and, and basically sort of throwing their lot into Joe Biden. That was a pretty stunning development to me, Um, you know, that the Democratic Party sort of all the opposition sort of collapsed and coalesced around Joe Biden as quickly as it did.
1: Right. Because he Um, finished fifth in New Hampshire and people thought he was weak. And suddenly South Carolina changed the game immediately.
2: It was unbelievable how yeah Biden was a disaster in Iowa, was a disaster in New Hampshire, lost in Nevada, um, won a state. Everybody expected him to win in South Carolina. And yet the reaction on that was, okay, we've got our candidate. <laughs> Everybody yeah, that was, you're right. Packed it up and, and went away. A um, small note, too, I thought that was really interesting. One, one of the things in 2020 that I thought would insulate um, Bernie Sanders, who, of course, had all the momentum prior to that, from Biden's momentum was the early voting that takes place in the, uh, in the Super Tuesday states. Places like California, Texas, et cetera, have extensive early voting. But Bernie never banked his vote. In those states he has younger supporters and they never got their ballots in so when the momentum hit it really shook everything up because so many people had waited until election day or very late in the contest i'll be interested to see if trump learns from that mistake right if, if you're trump right now you want to bank as many early votes in these early March contests as possible in case something changes. Right. Um, right. You know, and your environment isn't as good as we're saying, like coming out of South Carolina. Who knows? Right. You, you never know. And he has a, a lot of
1: legal. Time. He has a lot of legal issues to deal with, um, whether it's the ballots or civil or criminal cases. Exactly right. The context
2: right now, Trump's electoral situation will set aside legal, et cetera. Um, is sort of optimal. So now is when you want to be banking those those absentee votes and, and early votes in those places.
1: I want to ask you also about President Biden. He doesn't really have strong challenges. Marianne Williamson isn't polling much. Congressman Dean Phillips doesn't poll much. You know, obviously uh, Robert F Kennedy Jr. is off the Democratic side and running as independent. His polling, President Biden's polling, is is not good. His approval ratings come in at you know, record lows, depending on different polls. Uh, his numbers, he loses head-to-head in a lot of surveys against former President Trump if there is a rematch in 2024. What do you think he can do to flip that script?
2: Boy, I tell you two things that are obviously on the minds of the, the Biden campaign team right now. The first is to the extent that they can either influence the economy or influence people's perceptions of the economy. This was behind the whole Bidenomics initiative of last summer, um, to rebrand sort of the good economic news is associated with Bidenomics, and uh, you know, so they're still working on that. I, I keep having flashbacks to, to George H. W. Bush in 92, when even though the economy was in recovery. Uh, voters had absolutely written off George H.W. Bush's stewardship of the economy, right? Um, so Biden's still fighting that fight. That, that's sort of number one. The second thing I think is a little less obvious. They keep, they meaning the Biden people, keep talking about, well, this is going to be a choice, not a referendum. That's wrong. It's two referendum. There's a referendum. What do you think of the four years Biden was president compared to the four years Trump was president? I don't think they're thinking that. Um, but they're going to need to because, as my, my good friend Arnon Mishkin, who's on the decision team at Fox, said, I, I thought this was really insightful. Arnon said, memories of Trump's administration froze sort of February 28, 2020,
6: mm. right? Yeah,
2: the, COVID. The, the, the COVID stuff, didn't, that didn't affect people's impressions of how the economy was under Trump was sort of all pre-COVID. And so I'm not sure the Biden people have come to grips with the fact that for a lot of people – rightly or wrongly. Their perception is the economy under Trump was good. The economy under Biden is bad.
1: Well, we've a lot of time to get to that possible rematch as 2024 begins with the Iowa caucus is just now 13 days away. The first contest, Darren Shaw, professor of government at the University of Texas, member of the Fox News National Decision Team and on the bipartisan Fox polling group. Great to talk to you. Happy New Year. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.
6: Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
5: This is Liz Peek with your Fox News commentary coming up. At the closing bell December thirteenth, 2023, the markets
3: rallied after Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said they would not raise rates and that Federal Open Market Committee members aren't anticipating the need to raise rates.
1: The median participant projects that the appropriate level of the federal funds rate will be 4.6% at the end of 2024, 3.6% at the end of 2025 and 2.9% at the end of 2026.
3: One of the biggest effects of rate hikes so far has been on the housing market.
1: After picking somewhat over the up somewhat over the summer, activity in the housing sector has flattened out and remains well below the levels of a year ago, largely reflecting higher mortgage rates. Fox Business reporter
3: Jeff Locke toured a just-sold house with Chicago real estate agent Rebecca Dumcombe the day after Christmas. And while they acknowledge slightly lower mortgage rates, the vibe has been and still is pretty rough.
6: It's a very, very tough market without having enough inventory and the prices are getting higher. It is tough.
3: Sounds like a lot of homes. 350,000
2: homes affordable this year uh, among the listings. But last year it was almost double that. Things have gotten worse, not better.
3: Even so, after Powell's comment as rates already started creeping down, giving some folks in real estate new hope. Katrina Campens, host of Mansion Global, told Fox Business.
5: You're seeing major price reductions. You're seeing a lot of incentives. And you are seeing people get off the fence and start looking for homes. But we still have very low supply. And also, Charles, the cost... To buy is still 52% higher than to rent. So what is the real
3: estate and builder industry getting ready for? And is the housing market's sole issue interest rates, or has it been something else as well?
4: Yeah, I think from the the housing perspective, we are now past peak mortgage interest rates.
3: Robert Dietz is the chief economist at the National Association of Home Builders.
4: Uh, Which looked like they were set uh, roughly in late October. Uh, We we saw mortgage rates approach 8%, uh, which was a a multi-decade high. It certainly priced out a lot of demand. Uh, We still lack inventory in the market, so housing affordability and construction costs are still an issue. Uh, But what we're expecting in 2024 is a a pricing back in of housing demand and gains for certain kinds of housing activity, including single-family home building.
3: Okay, so if you Googled just the words housing market recently, one article says, a look back on the year the housing market froze over. And that was next to an article that said experts predict housing market turnaround next year. So let's start with the frozenness. Um, What was the frozenness of 2023 and maybe before that even entirely attributable to rate hikes um, like mortgage rates approaching, as you said, 8% or was something else making things even more sticky? Was it inflation? Was it something else?
4: If we think about the the resale market, uh, I think there's two fundamental factors that kind of froze in place the the market. Uh, One was short run. uh, The the really dramatic uh, increases in interest rates that began in the first quarter of 2022 resulted in the mortgage rate lock-in effect. Uh, this is the idea that an existing homeowner who has a a two to three percent thirty year fixed rate mortgage because of, of refinancing uh, is unlikely to put their home on the market uh, for purchase uh, because yeah, that became a not-
3: meme. That became a meme actually. Two per- <laughs> if you locked in at two to three percent, you were like, yeah. you know, never. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah, you never get never get rid of that mortgage. So uh, that has, in the short run, limited the amount of inventory in the market. If you look at the the resale, single family inventory data, the count of homes that are on the market is about half of what it should be. Month supply is uh, somewhat less than four months in a market that really needs five to six months supply. And home building has attempted to fill in some of that gap. Historically, new single family homes have represented 10 to 15% of total inventory of the market. Right now, they're a full third of inventory in the market. Uh, of course, there are limiting factors on how much additional housing supply that home builders can provide. Uh, the industry still faces challenges with respect to the availability of skilled labor, the availability of, of building lots and, and zoning rules, and of course, ongoing issues Uh, with uh, building materials and and even the the loans uh, that uh, builders and land developers take out to to finance their conditions. And that speaks to the second factor that uh, limited the amount of inventory and sales in the market in in 2023, which is a long-term factor, which is that uh, we have underbuilt housing in the United States uh, since roughly uh, with the end of the Great Recession. Uh, I was going to ask you
3: about that if we had more because when I was in California there was this we we talked about that all the time that we were short (laughs) anywhere from one to three million housing units and I think that includes rental units as well Um, but nationwide we're talking about being short a number of units I can't seem to find a a firm number is it anywhere from two to six million like what how much do we need?
4: So there's there's a variety of estimates. Our, our team thinks right now the the country as a whole is short one and a half million homes. Uh, that's a, a sum of single family and multifamily. There are certainly larger estimates out there. There's a lot of estimates that put it at four million, some at, at five million or higher. Just about everyone though agrees that we're we're, we're short on housing units, and our uh, characterization, our analysis indicates. Uh, That The the reason for that shortage is that from roughly 2012 until the end of 2019, the supply side factors in the home building industry, including a lack of skilled workers because the industry lost one and a half million workers during the, the Great Recession, and it's not a big surprise, the combination of low supply, greater demand with historically low mortgage interest rates, and then home prices increase from 30 to 40%, not keeping up with income growth over the last few years. So that's driven housing affordability down. And this is our our big policy message, which is that the only way to really tame some of these housing affordability challenges is ultimately on the supply side of the economy. Demand side policies are not gonna work. We simply have to build more attainable, affordable housing, single family and multifamily, but for sale, and and, and for rent.
3: What about zoning? Are you looking at zoning and saying, wow, this is contributing to a a big part of the problem?
4: That's right, it it is is one of the policy elements. There's there's a a large number of them, um, but uh, uh, rigid zoning laws uh, that essentially make builders use too much land to produce a community is is a big challenge. So Mm -hmm. in, in New England, for example, the typical lot size Um, a newly built single family home is almost a full acre that's too large so in in markets where we have seen some ability to build light touch density so this is still single family housing it's still for sale it still offers the 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 dream of home ownership but where you you offer some additional ability to build with density we have seen some improvements a good example of that is the townhouse construction market Right now, about 17 percent of single-family homes that are built are townhouses, and that is a, a multi-decade high. Um, and it really speaks to you know a certain kind of buyer that wants to get into home ownership, wants a single-family home, uh, but is looking for a walkable neighborhood. That kind of light touch or gentle density uh, is, is certainly in demand in markets that will zone for it. I think too often what we see in place, though. Is, is one extreme or the other. Markets where you can only build single family and large lot single family, or markets where they're really trying to promote high rise multifamily. And so that results in then the missing middle. We don't build enough duplexes, right. we don't build enough townhouses. The problem is uh, in a number of markets where they have moved to make some of these zoning challenges, you still have the other underlying challenges that are limiting the amount of of homes supplied to the market so just moving the the zoning rules themselves is does not fix the problem
3: okay at what point is it smarter to rent rather than than buy I, but no. i've always we've always had this debate right like are right. we at a place right now where it actually does make more sense to rent if you're at close to eight percent mortgage rates
4: Uh, You know, I think maybe we could have had that discussion a couple of months ago, but our our general take on the housing market, and this has been fairly consistent uh, in in my research over the last couple of decades, is that there's a a time to rent and a time to buy. Uh, You know, typically renting is at the start of your career, particularly if you're single prior to marriage. If you expect to move in a short period of time or you're in a high mobility job, then renting probably makes sense. And we we need to ensure that the multifamily market and the single family rental market are providing an available supply of rental housing. In the long run, there are distinct social and individual level benefits to home ownership. That's clear in the literature. It it helps communities that have high home ownership rates. It helps wealth accumulation. Health outcomes and education outcomes, we think by the end of next year, uh, the typical 30 year fixed rate mortgage is going to be around or just under six and a half percent. And that means housing affordability conditions are improving. Um, And so this is this is a market opportunity, um, you know, given your career circumstances and and where your income levels are uh, to maybe explore the market in a little bit more detail
3: interesting I got one more for you that that's like I think we kind of touched on it but um the notion of converting retail converting commercial because the, what, what's no. the you' what are you hearing about this empty commercial space what, what can you do with it especially as we talked about with zoning I mean yes. what are you supposed to do there you'd have to change you have to change a lot of rules, regulations, and laws to to convert retail or commercial space into residential, I imagine.
4: Converting high-rise office buildings in the largest metropolitan areas is a a very difficult task in terms of converting those buildings over to residential. I think all all you need to do is look at Google Maps and you can kind of identify what is an office building versus what's a residential building. (laughs) Residential buildings tend to have a non-cube type shape because when you, you have a an apartment, whether it's owned or, or rented, it's gotta have windows. It's gotta have different kinds of building systems. So you can't just simply take an existing office building and quickly convert it as is into a residential building. it's very expensive. It takes a long time, requires code changes and, and building code uh, type uh, changes. But there is a great opportunity here if we're talking about more medium density, real estate markets and converting those to residential. So, for example, uh, a shopping mall that's gone vacant. Uh, you know, With public support and uh, appropriate changes in zoning, you can easily imagine how a shopping mall could uh, be torn down and then the footprint of that uh, real estate converted over to an urban village that has townhouses, low-rise multifamily, uh, and then uh, commercial buildings in the middle, grocery stores, theaters.
3: Interesting. Okay. Well, Robert Dietz, Chief Economist at the National Association of Home Builders, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Yeah, thanks for the invite. Good to join you. Happy holidays.
0: I'm Gianna Gelosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. The house where four University of Idaho students were killed last year has been demolished. marks an emotional milestone for the victims' families and a close-knit community that was shocked and devastated by the brutal stabbings. The owner of the rental home near the university campus in Moscow, Idaho, donated it to the university earlier this year. Students Ethan Chapin, Zanakernodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Goncalves were fatally stabbed there in November 2022. Some of the victims' families have opposed the demolition, calling for the house to be preserved until the man accused of the murders has been tried. Brian Koberger, a former criminology graduate student at Washington State University, City in neighboring Pullman, Washington, has been charged with four counts of murder. A judge entered a not guilty plea on Coburger's behalf earlier this year. No trial date has been set. There's more on this story at foxnews.com. Subscribe to the Fox True Crime Podcast with Emily Campagno. I'm Gianna Jolosi with your Fox True Crime Minute.
6: From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com.
1: It's time for your Fox News commentary. Liz Peak. What's on your mind?
5: Democrats are marching through various stages of grief as they contemplate President Joe Biden running for re-election in 2024. They have variously been hopeful, worried, frantic, and now they're getting downright angry. Far-left columnist Harold Meyerson, editor of the liberal magazine American Prospect, is furious that more Democrats have not jumped into the race. His latest piece asks, Are the Democrats sleepwalking to disaster? The former Washington Post writer says Biden has been an excellent president, but is concerned that he is the candidate least able to defeat Donald Trump. Those are his words. Meyerson is certainly not alone. A rising chorus of Democrat voices are urging Biden to step aside, including now, apparently, Barack Obama. The question is, who might replace Biden. Meyerson lofts Gavin Newsom as a possibility, but notes that the California governor, quote, lacks appeal to working class voters. He also throws Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer into the mix, but supposes she would face misogynistic hurdles, deploying one of Hillary Clinton's many excuses for losing in 2016. He totally ignores Vice President Kamala Harris, as do most commentators, even though tossing her aside could be risky for Democrats. For months, Newsom has been the favored candidate of elite liberals. He's reliably progressive, telegenic, and has been running a stealth campaign to introduce himself to American voters. Unfortunately for Newsom backers, the governor is slip-sliding towards oblivion. If Newsom falls appropriately by the wayside, could Governor Gretchen Whitmer be up next? Unlike Newsom, she represents an important swing state, and her favorability ratings in Michigan are better than the president's. Politico reports that Democrats outside of Michigan have encouraged her to run, including members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Also, a female candidate could help Democrats next year keep the focus on abortion. Polling shows Whitmer competing against Donald Trump more successfully than Biden, Harris, or Newsom. Harris, of course, is the obvious replacement should Biden bow out but her approval ratings are even worse than the president's, despite numerous efforts by her team and the White House to gin up support. Newsom, Whitmer, and Harris are all likely contenders should Biden withdraw from the race. Given their likely electability, Joe may be forgiven for staying put. This is Liz Peake, Fox News contributor.